We're back in our Corinthians series today, um, and I'm pretty excited about that, actually. Uh, you know, we've been in rally days for the last couple of weeks, and I, I want to urge you, if you were not here over the last couple of weeks, if you missed either the last two weeks, to go online and to listen to the messages, because uh, it's, it's not just a message that you missed for the week. They're kind of messages for the year. Uh, rally days are annual messages that are vision messages. So it's not just that you missed a week, you'll miss a year if you don't go back and check it out. So, uh, you know, check out the, the last two weeks and go online and, and check that out see vision, where's, where does God have us, where's he taking us, that type of thing. But uh, I'm also really excited to get back into the Word as we walk through Corinthians. And I want to get us up to speed. When we take a few weeks off, sometimes we forget where we're at in the book and what's happening in the letter. So I just want to give us a little uh, review of the, the church in Corinth. You remember... This is a spectacular birth in the church. There's this wonderful thing that happens. Because, I mean, Corinth, you remember, hideous city, just sin, sin, sin. You know, raw, nasty sin all over the place. Also an intellectual community, uh, money-making community. Uh, had, as far as the world goes, they had it all going for them. You know, they were having all the fun, all the money, all the brains, all the stuff, you know. But it was also understood, even by the pagans of that culture, to just be a raunchy place, you know. And, uh, but God miraculously birthed this church because Paul went to the synagogue there and he couldn't make any headway and he was getting booted out of the synagogue and everything. And then the synagogue leader, Sophanes, he came to Christ. And uh, he got booted out of the church, out of the synagogue, and then they started a house church in his in his house. The guy who was the synagogue ruler was it was now in his house that that God started a church there through Paul, which is just awesome, and it was so cool. So anyway, uh, Paul stayed there for eighteen months, which was really long for him, and uh, he hung out there for a while, and then he took off. And uh, when he took off, there was other preachers who came through. Uh, it looks like Peter probably came through. Uh, certainly Apollos did, who was a pretty gifted speaker. And you remember what happened with them. It turns out that they, they, they started being, uh, cri- they were critiquing the different uh, teachers and they became fans of, this is my favorite preacher. And this is, and, and you know, that was kind of a thing of the day anyway. Entertainment in that day was about these philosophers who would come and talk and they just kind of did, did that with, it was consumer church. Not that we know anything about consumer church in America. And, uh, but it was consumer preacher, you know. And so it was their favorite preacher, and they were battling about that. And Paul, they read, wrote a letter to Paul and asked him uh, about some basic things in, in their lifestyle, what they were supposed to be engaged in and that type of thing. But before he uh, gets to that, uh, he spends six chapters dressing them down about uh, about where they've gotten it wrong. And uh, some of it's pretty harsh tone, some of it's kind, loving tone, but the bottom line is, is that he's realizing that since he's been gone, they've been missing the point. And if they're trying to say, my preacher's better, or this preacher's better, or they're trying to say, I'm more holy and you're more holy, and they completely miss the point about the fact that they live by the grace of God, you know? And that by the grace of God, they stand and they're one together. Instead, they've been in competition and been about all this dumb stuff. And so that's why he spends the first six chapters of the book, of the, of the letter. When he gets to the seventh chapter, and of course the chapters are added after time. It was just one big letter. But when you get to the, to the seventh chapter in, in our Bible, uh, that's where he starts really addressing uh, the concerns that they had, and he starts speaking to those concerns, and he deals with marriage and sexuality, and we talked about that. He deals with the meat, sacrifice to idols, and, and uh, he talks about uh, gender um, in worship, and he talks about a, a number of different topics that they had brought up that they're really concerned about. And uh, we have been kind of progressing, moving forward from the book at that point, but he has these different topics that he kind of weaves in and out of. And so we've also been taking the topics and going topic by topic in the second half of the book. And so we've taken a little bit from this chapter and a little bit from that chapter, and we're touching every part of the the letter, but we're, for the purpose of our Sunday mornings, we've been kind of going uh, topic by topic through the second part of the book. And so we already were in chapter 10, and that's when he was, they were talking about, you remember those pagan restaurants they would go to that were also temples? And they would go to these temples that were, it was kind of worship and eating out at the same time, and that's what culture did, and they were wondering if they could still do that, and that was chapter 10. But in the middle of that, he talks about the Lord's Supper, okay? And one of the, ex, one of the examples he's talking about, about why they can't engage in going to these other 
uh, restaurants or whatever is because because of the Lord's Supper. And so we're going to actually talk about that a little bit today. We're going to go back to chapter 10 and touch on that a little bit. But then also in chapter 11, he transitions and he starts addressing order in worship. When it comes to how they do worship services, how it's supposed to function and how God's honored in worship services. And the first part of chapter 11 is he talks about how men and women were in, in that time, how they were supposed to function in the worship services. And we talked about that not being the primary point of that chapter, that that was kind Kind of a, it was a sub point in the broader point of the chapter, and the broader point of the chapter had to do with how we approach God, and, and literally it has to do with communion and, and the Lord's Supper. And so that's what we're dealing with today. We're going to be mostly in chapter 11, but we're pulling a little bit from chapter 10, and that brings us up to speed with where we are in uh, the book of Corinthians, okay? So uh, we're going to be starting in 1 Corinthians 10, chapter 14, or chapter 10, verse 14, Read a few verses and then we'll skip to chapter 11. And I'm going to ask you to please stand with me in honor of God's word as we read it. Now that you just got comfortable. All right. Thank you for standing with me. 1 Corinthians 10, 14. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we, who are many, are one body. For we all partake of the one loaf. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat in the sacrifices participate in the altar? Do I mean then that a sacrifice offered to an idol is anything or that an idol is anything? No. But the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons, too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than He? And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, in verse 17, he returns to the topic of the Lord's Supper, this time with a different tone. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt, there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For as you eat, each goes ahead without waiting for anyone else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for each other. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home, so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come... I will give further instructions. And may God add blessing to the reading of his word. You can have a seat and join me in prayer. God, we thank you for your word. And we thank you uh, just that we get to like, we have right here in front of us, not only your holy word, the Bible, but we also have 
this letter written from the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth dealing with a very real issue around worship in a real church, in a real time, in real culture. And we get to eavesdrop in on that and get to hear the principles of it. And then you get to take that and, and use it in our lives. And, and you get to reinterpret what that means for us here and now. So we thank you and praise you for that. We ask that as we read this, as we work with this, uh, and as we look at it, that you would speak clearly to us, God, that we would understand what it is that you have for us today. In the name of Jesus, amen. So have you ever been in one of those situations where uh, it was like, it was either a nature scene or it might have been a concert or it might have been some kind of moment with a bunch of other people, but the setting was like perfect. Everything about it was perfect. There was one major problem though, is that the person who you wanted there with you to share it with you wasn't there. And so it made it not perfect. Have you ever experienced that? You know, where it's like, ah, oh, this would have been great. And, uh, and, but then it's almost like, it's kind of like ruined a little bit because the person's not there. When we come to communion, uh, well, when we come to communion with the wrong attitude and with the wrong perspective and in the wrong spirit, it's not only like that. I mean, that's, that's when we're, we're missing the point, but it's even a step further. It's more like this. It's like someone goes out on a date, an incredible date. Okay, a, a date where they're, they're driving across the countryside seeing beautiful autumn foliage. They stop at a lake where there's a sailboat hitched to the dock and they take a sail around the lake and they're seeing beautiful scenery. From there, they go into the city and they're sitting on a rooftop having a gourmet dinner overlooking the city. And from there, they go to an incredible show and their minds are just blown by this amazing show. And after that, it's late in the evening and they take a moonlit walk on the beach, okay? It's just a spectacular evening, an awesome date. The only problem is, is this person, when they went on the date, they went with a person who they don't even like. They, they, actually, they kind of really, that person really rubs them the wrong, they don't really like them at all. But they decided to go on the date because they heard what the date was going to be like, and they decided to play along and kind of act like they were, you know, into the person so that they could go on this date. That's just cruel, isn't it? That's just mean. In essence, that's what Paul says that the church of Corinth is doing with the Lord's Supper. Is that they're taking this most sacred of moments and they're cheapening it. And, and, and they're missing the whole point. You see, Paul uses, this is his choice language. He takes the harshest tone out of the entire letter, actually out of both of his letters to Corinth. Out of, out of the entire communication to Corinth, this is the harshest tone that he takes with them. Why? Because he recognizes that when it comes to communion, when it comes to the Lord's Supper, this is the pinnacle. This is the timeless, central, foundational, most sacred act of corporate worship in the entire Christian experience. This is it. Communion, worship service, love feast. This is it. And he says, and you guys are missing the point. You're missing the whole point. And what is the point? I mean, for, for you know, the, the, a couple thousand years of church history now, there's been lots of debate around some things around communion. Particularly, uh, you know, there's been debate around transubstantiation and consubstantiation. You guys all know what that means, right? That transubstantiation is, you know, when, if tonight on this table there will be, um, there will be bread on trays here and there will be uh, grape juice on, in trays uh, in the middle and there will be a cloth over it. And the question is, is this bread that will be sitting here on this table, is, is it actually Jesus? Is that bread actually the body of Jesus? Or is it a symbol of something? And there's been all sorts of debate over that for, for you know, thousands of years around what actually is the symbolism and what are all the symbols and what do they mean? And I don't want to minimize that debate because it's important. The doctrine is important. The symbols are important. The theology is important. All of those are very important. Jesus was making a, a very much a theological point when he took the Passover feast and he reinterpreted it about his own body and his own blood and he gave a whole new meaning to it. So the meaning behind it, all of that is very, very important. But when Paul is upset about them not approaching communion right, it's not about their theology and their understanding of what's going on in the symbolism. It's not about how often they eat it. 
It's not about what their understanding is of what they're eating. See, Paul's issue is this, is that before communion was a religious service, and before the Lord's table was, was an ongoing experience in the Christian community and, and one of those moments, special things that the church did, before that, what it was is it was 12 guys sitting in a room with Jesus having dinner. That's what it was. And it was this close, intimate moment where Jesus is about to go to the cross and he says, I have eagerly desired to eat this meal with you, is what Jesus says to him. See, what this whole communion thing is, is this is a special dinner with God. It's this, it's this great dinner to come together with, with God and his followers and to have dinner together. And Paul says that they've kind of been missing the point. That they've been checking the religious box and they've been doing the communion thing, but they've missed what it's really all about. It should be of no surprise to us that where we go off base and where Corinth went off base has to do with this when it comes to communion that it has to do with the two primary relationships that we enter into. Communion is not a mathematical equation, right? It's not, if I take this bread, then I receive eternal life. If I drink this cup, then I got the juice, and I, you know, we're good to go. Obviously, deep underneath of this is a yearning between God and his people, the whole reason that he created them. And he's yearning for an intimate moment with us. And here at the communion table, he offers it to us. He offers us a time to connect with him. And, and so Paul's real concern is when we approach the table, when we approach the, the, the love feast, when we approach communion, am I interested in connecting with God and am I interested in connecting with my brothers and sisters? That's the real question. And, and where we go wrong is twofold. One has to do with what Paul's talking about in chapter 10. He's saying, honestly... I don't think you guys really want to be with God. He didn't say it like that. He said it like, how can you share the table with the Lord and then also share it with demons? That's how he said it. Crazy way of saying it. But it made sense to them. But the way he might say it to us now is, how can we live our lives acting like we don't really care about connecting with God and then come and share the table, the most intimate table with God? You know? That, that might be how he would say it. Now, you see, Jesus does this incredible thing in chapter 11. Well, he's quoted in chapter 11 as saying this. He says, this, my blood, this blood is what? Anybody remember what he says there? It's the new covenant, okay? How often do we use covenant as just a, like a normal word in our society? Not, if you're outside of the religious stuff of like covenant theology and, and, and all of that, you know, outside of that, how often do you use the word just in general? There's probably one place in society where this word is used. Marriage. Yeah, this is a covenant. It's a, it's a, it's a, that's the only way our understanding of covenant in modern day America has to do with marriage. Where, by the way, that's a really good use of the term. You know, we, we've maintained that. I mean, that's kind of a sacred word in our society that's reserved for this one place. And that's fine, except there's one place that's even greater than that, which it should be used for as well, which has to do with our relationship with God, right? And, and so when we think about this meal, when we think about the Lord's table, Jesus is saying, this is the new covenant. I'm making a new covenant with you right now. This, honestly, this meal, when he's asking them to drink this and remember that there was a new covenant that was made, basically, every time that we enter communion and enter the Lord's table and we have this experience together, you know what that is? It's like a wedding anniversary. That's what it's like. The Lord's table is like a wedding anniversary. We have a covenant relationship, and this is when the covenant started. This is the new covenant. And we look back, and we remember when that covenant started. And we remember it every time that we go back, and we remember. We look back at that moment where it started, where it blazed the trail, where the veil between the Holy of Holies was torn in two, and we could enter into relationship with the living God. And there was no privacy between God and us anymore. There was no wall 
wall between us. It was torn down and we had open access to God and we could come in and commune with him. And he says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. And what does he say? Before I even get there, the old covenant. Okay, the old covenant was what? What was the old covenant? The law. The law is the old covenant. Where was that formed? Mount Sinai. So we're at Moses, Mount Sinai, fire, glory, crazy, like stuff being written on stones and lightning coming all over the place so that people would have fear. Okay, they were supposed to have fear. That's what God, he was trying to instill a sense of fear. Why? Because God wanted them to fear their own sin because he wanted them to know his holiness and righteousness. And then he puts on the law what his holiness and righteousness looks like and then tells them to live according to that. And every time that they don't, he tells them to make sacrificial atonement by shedding the blood of a lamb. Okay, the problem was, is that we all know none of us, none of them, none of us can live by the law. We can't even live by the sacrificial system of the law. We completely blow it all the time, right? We just, just mess it up. We can't handle it. We can't hang with God, okay? And so he knew that we were unfaithful in Hosea. He has a few choice words about how he sees us as complete and total whores. Is that exactly what he calls us? You know, like you have been entirely unfaithful to me. You've turned your back and run around to every other thing and you don't care at all, you know, and all of that. And that's how he describes us. But then something amazing happens at the new covenant. His blood is shed and he pays once and for all. And all of a sudden, all this stuff that we were trying to do to connect to God is irrelevant. It's irrelevant when it comes to our connection to God. He annihilates it. And what he does now is he imputes his righteousness on us. He washes it all and now he is attracted to us and he's drawn to us and he wants to be with us. And this is what he says. He says, he stands at the door of our heart and he knocks. And God is sitting there at the door of our hearts and he's knocking and he knocks. And what does he say our responsibility is now in the new covenant? If we don't obey the law in order to engage with him, what is it that we do do in order to engage? The religious terms that we often use is that we believe, that we trust, that we have faith, that we confess, that we repent. And these are terms that are all scriptural terms. But there are other scriptural terms that are relational ones, that we love, that we desire. These are words that if you seek me, you will find me if you seek me with all of your heart. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone will do what? Open the door. So here's our call when it comes to the new covenant is that we have to want God. The bottom line in a relationship with God is he made the way, he paid the price, he opened it up. The real question is whether or not we actually want him, whether we want relationship with him. There's nothing we can do to make the relationship okay. It's completely available to us. The only question is whether we actually want to engage it and open the door of our heart and enjoy relationship with him. If we're trying to, to self-justify and do all of that stuff, we're still concerned about justifying ourselves and we want to be with ourselves. But if we want to actually be with God, the door's wide open and all we have to do is, is on our end, open the door. He'll step through. We don't even have to step through. We just have to open up our door and let him step through. That's it. That's all our job is, is to just want him. That's it. If I want God, it's all good. But here's the deal, is that Paul had a problem with the church at Corinth because he's like, what you actually want to do is you want to go to the restaurant with your pagan buddies and eat that food, and then you also want to come over here and eat from the table of the Lord and check the box and say like, all right, I did my religious thing, now let's go back to having a good time. You know, And he's like, I, you might tell me that you want God. And that might be why you're at the Lord's table, because you're telling me you want God. And of course I want God. Who wouldn't want God? If I could have a dinner with Jesus today, sure. If Jesus showed up in the flesh and, and that got offered to me, would you want dinner with Jesus? Sure I would. And Paul's saying, I don't think so. I don't think so. I don't think you actually would. You might think that you would, but, but in reality you don't, because look at your life. 
And look, your whole life you have access to Jesus anytime you want. But what you actually want is you pursue this with your life and you pursue that with your life and you pursue this with your life. I, I don't think you actually want them. And the proof is, is in the choices of our lives, not in just the words that come out of our mouth or not just in, in showing up to a religious activity. It's what, what's the pursuit of my life? And, and this, is, this is very much like a, a kind of anniversary moment, you know? I can have the anniversary dinner and I can, you know, get the roses and do, you know, plan the dinner and make the reservation or whatever. But if I don't really feel like being there, you know, well then what's the point? You know, and that's kind of where he's like, if you don't really feel like being, if you feel like being over there at the pagan temple doing that stuff, well then go do it. You know what I mean? But if you want to be here, then be here and be into it, you know? And that's where he's kind of coming from. You know, um, uh, there's this story about, uh, I, in one of the commentaries that I was reading, it was this great story about Prince Charlie, who, uh, and I was just like, I got to retell this story. And Prince Charlie was on the run. There was a bounty on his head. And there was this group of vagabonds, these outlaws, okay? And they, there's this big bounty. They ran into Prince Charlie, and they thought about, like, well, we can take Prince Charlie in and make some big loot, you know? But instead, they decide, we're going to protect this guy. And so they take him in and they protect him and they get him to a place where he's safe and everything. And they protect him for a while. And once they, they finally are done their mission of protecting him and they get him to a place where he's safe, he goes and he shakes all of their hands. And one of the guys whose hands he, he shakes, he ends up settling down in Edinburgh in Scotland. And when he's in Edinburgh, apparently what happens is, is there's this legend that everybody knew he was one of the outlaws who protected Prince Charlie. And when they come to this guy to talk to him about it, they, you know, everybody would walk up to him and they'd go to shake his hand. And when they went to shake his hand, he'd always extend his left hand and reach around and grab their hand with their left hand and they're like what's that about and he'd say this hand shook prince charlie's hand i made a promise to myself that i would never shake another hand because this hand shook prince charlie's hand you know which is kind of cool isn't it i mean there's some, like you know in one sense it's kind of weird in another sense it's like it's kind of cool that like somebody held something that sacred you know and paul is saying the lord's table How can you sit at the table with the almighty God of the universe and then in the next day go and sit at the table at this pagan worship temple? How can I say that I'm satisfied and I desire and I want God, but I show in my life that what I actually want is all of these other things? I can't say that I want God and find satisfaction in God, and yet with the rest of my life, try to find satisfaction the way the world finds satisfaction. It doesn't work that way. That's double-mindedness. And he won't have any. Like a wife who goes out on her anniversary dinner to have an intimate time with her husband, she's not going to be okay with her husband going out the next night and having a similar dinner with some other woman. And God is not okay with us coming and saying that He is the God of our life and He is the desire of our life, and yet we live the rest of our life with other gods and with other desires. We sang this morning in the new song that we've been singing, that we are here for you. You're my one desire. One desire. That word one is really key. You know? My one desire. Some things are just intimate. And when they're intimate, it means they're exclusive. Like a marriage. Like a God. And like the Lord's table. So this was... Paul's first and primary issue with them is that they came with the weird attitude that they didn't actually want to be there, you know? I've actually been in this spot in my life where I'm like, oh, it's communion time. Football game's on tonight, you know? Like, and I had to think through that. And when I have to think through that, I'm like, there's a problem right now for me, you know? There's a problem if I have to worry about that. Um, There's a problem if I'm not, like, looking at this as a moment where it's like, this is the Lord's table. This is the time to connect with him and to connect, you know. And if I'm not there, then there's an issue, you know. And, uh, and the church in Corinth, they were really having an issue with it. The second attitude problem that he really struggled with, that they really struggled with, and this is where he gets into chapter 11, and this is where he just, his tone gets feverish, okay. It gets, like, this is where it gets ugly, And this is, he's like, shall I praise you on this level? I have nothing good to say about you. And he's like freaking out on him, okay? And this is why. Because what was was happening was, well, 
First, I'll tell you the meaning of, of, of what there is available in, in communion and why he's feeling like they're missing the point. In communion, there's this amazing thing where you sit down at the table, the table of the Lord, and all the walls disappear. You know what I mean by the walls, right? The, 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 the walls between all of us that have been there ever since the fall of man. You remember the first thing that happened after the fall of man? What was the first thing that happened? Yeah, put on clothes. We hid and we put on clothes. There, it divided us. And then God describes what the fall is going to look like. And wh- who does he address? The man and the woman, who were supposed to be one, but now they get a different curse, each of them. Because from here on out, it's, no lo- it's going to be tough to be just one. There's going to be the male side of the equation, you know, from Mars and, and the female side from Jupiter or Venus or whatever. I don't know what it is. You know, and like... We define ourselves based on the gender, on what we have different. And then, of course, not long after that, there was the righteous and the unrighteous thing, the, the super holy and the unholy, where Cain and Abel fight it out, you know? And then there's the generational problems that we see, and the divide in the generations. And then there's the racial problems, and there's the, the language problems, and there's all these different walls that get put up. And what's interesting is, is as humanity, we've learned to define ourselves based on those differences, right? It's not just about racism and ageism and all of that. It's that we actually take our identity in which country I'm in, which gender I'm in. We identify ourselves by, by what is different about me than everyone else. And that's how we know ourselves. But when you come to the Lord's table, something is available that isn't available anywhere else. And that's that I no longer live. Only Christ does. And at this table, there is no one good. Only God is good. There's no one person better than the other. Do you remember when that person came to Jesus and they went to ask him a question and they called him good teacher? And do you remember what his response was? Why do you call me good? There's no one good but God, which is hilarious because he was God, but the dude didn't know it and he knew the dude didn't know it. So he's like, why are you calling me good? You know? Because there's no one good but God. And when we come to the table of the Lord, and when we sit around together at the love feast, what ends up happening is, is there is no one good here, okay? There is one who's good. And that's who we celebrate, the body of the Lord. You know, that's it. And when we come together, we have value for one reason, because we have been reborn into the body of Christ, not by our own merit or by our gender or by our age or by our righteousness or by our race or by anything else. At this place, all walls come down. We're all in this together. We are one group of people. And what the world has over and over and over again tried to achieve in unity is available to us very simply by just believing. And if I will humbly come to the table and say, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Now I can reach across this table and there's nothing that divides you and me because as a matter of fact, we're part of the same body. We are one person. We are just together the body of Christ. And that's available at the table. It's available at the table. But what ended up happening in Corinth was something that drove Paul completely bonkers. Man, he was going nuts because what would happen was, and you know, these guys, they had communion all the time, right? They had it more often. It says, remember when we talked about Acts, in Acts chapter 2, if you were here at the beginning of the year, uh, we had our series on Acts chapter 2. They met together in each other's homes and they broke bread together. And we have right out here the, the paintings on the wall about the four practices of the church, word, fellowship, ordinances, and prayer, and the ordinances, that's communion there, you know, and and they would have this all the time, but they would come together and they would get together and they would share the meal. But apparently what was going on is this was like they didn't quite get the potluck memo. And so they would bring their own food and they would hang out with their family and their friends. And so those who had a lot of food and who had a lot of wine would hang out together and they would enjoy that. But then there would be these people over on the side who didn't have much money and who weren't as well respected in the community or something like that. And they'd be sitting over in the corner and they'd still be hungry and they wouldn't have anything to drink. And these guys would be sitting here laughing, having a good time, enjoying themselves. Paul even says they're getting buzzed, you know, getting tipsy and having a great time. And then they're going home and being like, all right, that was fine. And in the meantime, these people over here are completely isolated, you know? And Paul's like, we're missing the point. The whole point, remember, there's two points to this thing, is we connect with God and we connect with each other. 
Do I want to be with God? Is my life revealing that I want to be with God? And then when I show up at the communion table, when I show up, do I actually want to be with my brothers and sisters in Christ? Do I want to be with them or not? Is the real question. And for them, I mean, this is just like Paul just was going nuts because he's like, How can you actually be engaging, taking the bread, breaking the bread, consuming the bread as if to show that we now are the body of Christ and yet this person over here is sitting over there isolated and I haven't reached out and touched with them. I haven't interacted with the community. I don't really care about connecting with them. I'm interested in eating and and, and drinking and having a good time and then going home and being by myself. And if there isn't a sense in which we want to linger with those at church... If there isn't a sense at which I want, to ha- I want my life to be overlapping with others. If there isn't a sense at which I want to reach out and, and grab a hold of the community a little bit and engage and be a part and, 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 and be close to people. If there isn't a sense in which I feel that the other person in the room is part of me and that, and that I want to help them enjoy whatever it is that I'm enjoying. And if we don't have that going on in our lives then in some ways we got to really ask ourselves, are we truly what Paul calls the body of Christ? Am I a part of this thing? Is this legit or is this a facade? Is this a religious experience or is this the truth that we are engaging the body of Christ? You know? And that's really what, what Paul's bent about. And I, you know, obviously, appropriately so, he's uh, pretty frustrated about it. And, um, you know, these are things that we need to ask ourselves, obviously, as we go into communion. So if we are headed into communion, what does it actually look like if we do it right? What does the love feast actually look like when we get it right? And, and, and how, what would be our perspective coming into it if our spirit was in the right place? See, we recognize that when Jesus broke the bread, can you throw me my water? Sorry, guys. It's about to go. Thank you. So um, when he broke the bread and he poured the cup, we know that there is symbolism there, right? That it's not all just literal, that there's symbolism. How do we know that? How do we know it's not all literal? Because Jesus was standing there and he said, this is my body. But he was standing there, right? So like obviously that wasn't completely legitimately his body all the way because his body's right there, you know? And so there's some sort of symbolism in this whole thing right? And what is the symbolism? The symbolism is this, is that if we want to engage God and we want to connect with him, we need the sacrifice. We need, he said, this is the new covenant. We need the broken body and the shed blood. This is him paving the way. This is, this is when we look back, okay? So in the wedding anniversary, one of the fun things that Jen and I do every now and then in, at, at wedding anniversaries uh, is we'll look back at memories, We'll talk about memories, about like the wedding day. We have a couple little books that were like craft kind of books that were like, you know, pictures or stories about stuff that was happening in our story. And uh, when we got engaged, Jen wrote this book with pictures, fully illustrated book about our engagement, which we'll go back and read that thing. And I made one for her at one point. It was about our time in Chicago together and, and had pictures of the different places in Chicago we were at. And we'll like look back at that stuff and remember. And we'll look over, and sometimes we'll look through the wedding album and we'll look at, and we'll remember that dress that she was wearing or the music that was playing. And, uh, you know, and we'll remember that stuff. And as we remember it, we're looking back at, at what it was this moment when the covenant was formed, you know? And that sacred moment that leads to this moment now. And, and in communion, we understand that this covenant was formed in blood and it was brutal and it was horrific and it wasn't like beautiful wedding bells. It was like a guy carrying a cross, you know? And it, it was terrible. And yet when we come to the table, we decide to take the symbolism of the body broken in the shed blood and we remember it. We dwell on it. We think about it. The same way you would think back about the relationship and that day in marriage and you sit there and you dwell on it. And as we prepare for Love Feast tonight, our minds should begin to think through what it's like, which is why the theme of the songs today, you know, we're talking about amazing grace and we're talking about the wondrous cross and we're talking about these things because we're trying to get ourselves focused to remember that moment. And, and in the same way that I might live listen to a song that was played at our wedding. We're listening to songs that are talking about what Christ went through. And, and so the symbolism, as I approach appropriately the love feast, I, I'm thinking about that symbolism. 
But, it, but everything that Christ says isn't just symbolism. It's not just metaphor here. There's also things that are literal. There's a literal part of this body being broken. That in one way, this actually is the body of Christ. There's a couple ways. I mean, first of all, when Jesus says that, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens the door, I will come in and do what? Sup with him. He wants to eat with us. And he's saying that he's at the door of our hearts and he wants to have dinner with us. And the moment where he has dinner with us is when we come together as the body of Christ and we sit here around the table and we break this bread and while we understand there's symbolism and there's metaphor and we understand that this thing might not be physical flesh, what we also understand is that Jesus is actually present here with us today. And that this meal is not just a a tool of memory. This is not just symbolism. This This is actually an anniversary dinner with Jesus. And so tonight, when we show up here, and there's tables set up over here, and chairs set up over here, and we're sitting around the table, and we're engaging in this love feast, and as we're doing this tonight, we recognize this is a moment to meet with Jesus. That He is here wanting to have dinner with us. And in the same way that he sat down around that table with the 12 disciples, he's inviting us tonight to a table to have dinner with him. Is Jesus still alive? Is Jesus still present with us? If we believe it, then there should be a sense of anticipation around like, I can't wait to have dinner with Jesus. And if you think about it in terms of an anniversary, it's kind of like this. Certainly we're celebrating what happened back then. And we're going to remember that. And the symbolism is very important. But I also need to remember, like, tonight is a special night. It's not just that that wedding was a special night. That wedding's a special night because tonight is available. The fact that I can sit across the table and reach out and grab Jen's hand and we can still look and, and have a conversation with each other and we can still love each other is what makes that wedding so special. And the fact that I can engage with Christ right now around the Lord's table today is what makes the memory important. If I remember this thing that happened back there and I can recite it and I can say everything about him dying on the cross, but I don't actually engage him in the moment and I'm not excited to be with him in the moment, then I'm missing the point. You know what I mean? The whole point is to be with him. And then secondly, the, 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 what, the literal part of it is that the body of Christ is right here. It is literally right here. I mean, I can reach out right now and I can grab Barb's hand and I can touch her hand. And when I do, I recognize that I'm touching the body of Christ. We realize that? That he inhabits us. And when we take the bread that's broken and we consume it, the symbolism is, moves beyond symbolism to an actual literal interpretation that we are the body of Christ. If his spirit dwells in us and we are the flesh that wraps around his spirit, then guess what? This flesh is the flesh of Christ, which is why he says this. He he says, so as you've done to the least of these brothers of mine, you've done unto me. You remember that? When, when, with the parable of the sheep and the goats, when did we see you hungry and we fed you? He said, so as you've done to the least of these brothers of mine, you've done unto me. And this is what Paul's trying to say. Here we are. Here we are at the communion table and there's a person sitting over here and I don't really have any desire or feel the need to reach out and touch them and connect with them. And he said, hey man, you just come to the love feast and Jesus was sitting over there and you didn't care. You know? And that's literal. That is not metaphor. That is not symbolic. That is literal. That is the body of Christ. That is the flesh of Christ wrapped around that person because Christ indwells them. And if Christ indwells them, that is his body. And it is my job to touch the body of Christ. It is my job to engage the community. And if I don't want to be with the church, and if I don't want to be with God, then the point of communion is lost. 
there used to be this old tradition in the church, and it was this. It was that the elders of the church would go to every member of the church prior to love feast. And love feast used to be this thing. It used to be that there was like kind of like when it was a real agricultural society and everything was spread out. Love feast was hard. It was hard to do communion all the time. The reason love feast got to be a twice a year thing was you'd have these little kind of house church communities. But then every now and then they'd get together for a big love feast. Everyone would get in their buggies or whatever and would drive, you know, all, all from wherever to come together to, to have a big share of love feast together. But before they did, and it would happen twice a year, but leading up to that, the elders of the church would go into the homes of each member of the church and they would show up and they'd sit down in the living room with the members of the church and they would ask him a couple questions that would go something like this. How are you at in your relationship with God? Where are, you, where are you at? Are you like desiring God? Are you walking with God? Are you honoring God? Are you in deep connection? Is, is your relationship with him through the word working? And they would ask those kind of questions. And then they would ask this other question and they'd say, is there anything that you have going on with a brother or sister that's not okay? Is there something between you guys? Is there some sort of sin? Is there some... Because what they understood was, if we're going to engage this love feast, let's let it be legit. Let's let it be real. Let's let it not just be a religious service where we take some bread and drink some, uh, some wine and we remember about a historical event when Jesus did something. But let's be present with Christ and present with each other in this thing so they would check in. The funny thing is now, we don't do that. Okay, we don't go to each of your homes and ask what's going on in your relationship with God. And, and one of the reasons is this. Because we can't assume that people are going to actually come to communion. <laughs> right? Back then it was like it was the big thing. Of course you would always show up at your wedding, wedding anniversary. Of course you would show up at communion. Why would you ever not think about showing up at communion? But this morning, like you saw Josh up here doing a song and a dance almost about how important Love Feast is because we're trying to convince that like Love Feast is actually important. And can you imagine if my wife had to convince me that a wedding anniversary dinner is important? You know? And what, what's happening is partially that we've lost some of the awareness of, of just how central this is and we haven't been raised in all of that or we don't get it. And, and, but, but part of it is really indicative of where we're at. You know, where we are with our hearts sometimes. When it comes to our own desire to engage, you know? And, and that's not a guilt trip. That's, honestly, it's really not. I mean, it's just honestly trying to reflect appropriately what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11 and try to translate it to our culture, you know? They were showing up at every communion service. He was like, but the attitude was wrong. It used to be that they would always go around and check all the attitudes to make sure they were okay as they came to love feast. But now it's like the question is, will we actually even want to go? Which is a little more honest, you know? It's a little more honest about where we are. And I think that we have to think about that and say, do I really, am I, am I wanting, how big of a deal is this to me? How of an important thing is it to me? Do I want to engage God? This is the central practice of the Christian church throughout history. This is it. This is the most sacred experience, you know? And do I want to be there? And do I want to connect with my brothers and sisters? And that should be revealed all throughout my life in the same way that my connection with my wife should be happening all of the time. But then there's this special moment when you have the anniversary. You know, when you look forward to it. In the same way, it should be that with church where we're always wanting to connect with each other, where we're always wanting to connect with God. But then there's the special moment where we have the anniversary dinner of the new covenant and we celebrate it and we look forward to it and we plan for it and we plan our calendars around it and we do all of those things. Not like, ah, what are we doing? Are we going to make it to that or not? Like, ah, oh, yeah, I forgot anniversary today. Well, I had a thing with the guys. You know, maybe, how long do you want to do dinner? And then I'll see if I can go hang out with the guys afterwards. You know, like, that doesn't work for a wedding anniversary. And yet somehow it works for us when it comes to the Lord's table. And, and that's, again, just, a, it's just honestly the, the only way I can think to apply this passage with where we live and breathe now, you know? Um, and these guys in Corinth, they had a, it was really interesting. They had, they had this sense that if they ate the bread and drank the cup, that it would protect them from everything. One of the reasons they were going to these temples, these other temples, was because they, this is what they thought. If I drink the juice and if I eat the bread, then I can do everything else and I'm kind of safe. It's like the super juice you know, and we still have that issue. Those of us who were raised in, in other kind of backgrounds, high church backgrounds and all of that, yeah, that, that doctrine of transubstantiation where this is the actual physical body of Christ, that sometimes we can get to the place where 
uh, we think like as long as you get the Eucharist in you, then you're okay. And then you do whatever else with your life. But as long as you like kind of go through the thing. And, and of course, we don't actually believe that. But these guys kind of did. They thought it was the juice that saved them. And, and there's been a reaction, though, in, in, in reaction to that theology. Many of us have kind of lost the value of just how important communion actually is. And in reaction to like, well, it's not actually the body of Christ. It's just a symbol. And of course, I know about Jesus dying on the cross for me. So I don't have to go through all of that. I already know that. I'm already, you know, and so we just think it's just this symbolic tool of remembrance. We don't realize that it is actually a spiritual thing, that there is something mystical happening, that Jesus is with us at the table, that we are the body of Christ, and that there's a real connection to be had here. And he set it up intentionally that way, not just so that we get the metaphor, but that we actually engage it. And that we would participate in it. And Paul ends the text by saying this. And this is bizarre. And I, w- I want you to really think through this for a second as we end. He says, some of you are actually getting sick. And some of you are hurting. You are weak. Some of you are even falling asleep, dying, because you approach the table inappropriately. Isn't that weird? I want you to just think about that for a second. Like, get out of Corinth and come to modern-day America. And what if I said this to you? Hey, man, if you're not interested in doing the love feast thing, you're going to get sick tonight, okay? And you're going to have, you're going to get weak. Your muscles are going to get weak, and your immune system is going to get weak, and you might even die if you don't eat communion. And if you don't, like, engage it appropriately or if you come with the wrong attitude. Wouldn't that be weird? Be like, ah, that's a little like crazy, you know? Because our reaction to the to the whole spirituality of communion service has come so far that it's like, how could that actually have effects on my life like that? And yet Paul very clearly says that because they're not engaging it appropriately, that they're weak and they're sick and some are falling asleep. Why is that a big deal? Why would God allow all of that to happen? Because of this. Because We were created to be in a relationship with the living God and this is the most sacred moment to connect with Him. And if we don't care, then what else matters? And He'll let us get sick or He'll let us get whatever and He's trying to not let us be real happy in the life that doesn't actually make us happy or fulfill us because we're designed to be with Him. And whatever it takes to get us to focus back on being with Him, that's what we need. And so if we look at our lives and I look at my life and say, you know, I have this stuff and I have this thing going on, but somehow I'm still unsettled and I have these troubles in my life and all of that, maybe one of the things we actually need to do is take Paul literally and say, maybe I need to think about where my focus is. And I need to say, do I really want to be with God and do I really want to be with my brothers and sisters? And maybe if I did, it would change some of the outcome of the rest of my life. And maybe I struggle to want to be with God. And maybe I struggle to want to be with all those bozos, you know? Maybe I I struggle with that but maybe I want to want it. That's a great time to come to the table and say, God, I need your broken body and your shed blood because I can't change my own heart. And I know this isn't for good people or for perfect people. It's for broken people. And I want to want you and I want to want to be there for each, you know, with each other, but I struggle. So it's time for me to again remember his body broken for me and his blood shed for me to change my heart. Let's pray.